I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. 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 Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom. Once again, a fan of Albert J. Nock. Uh, he kind of fell off the radar for a while, but now he's back up, as you guys will see in this installment. Bionic. <laughs> you I would never get to that room. last name. Look, look over the... I hope you can explain that when we get there. Yeah, we. I will. You know uh, what? I, I will. I will. Ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be back for another Future Quake show. Appreciate you uh, hanging with us as we... We walk and look through a very, very dark mirror, mm. trying to figure out what's going on. And Sometimes I feel like it's a funhouse mirror. Struggle blindly. I really just need to eat less. Sometimes I wonder if we're like that epitome of the blind leading the blind uh, yeah. analogy in the Bible, you know. If you're wear, wearing a crash helmet to like the chest I hope match. Not. And, I know. hope not. Well, ladies and gentlemen, again, it's great to be back. And uh, we've got some more stories and things to chat with you about mm-hmm. and a couple quick announcements here. Um let me just first mention before I forget, because I do forget sometimes, and if I forget anybody's names on my little notes I jotted on my notebook, please forgive me for this. But I want to thank Donald in Minnesota for ordering our, he ordered one of our two book sets this week. Mm-hmm. And also Allison for ordering a frightening book, uh, which will be on the way to you here pretty soon. I saw it out by the door. Yep. And, uh, I also want to thank, um, uh, Bob and Joy and Ruth. And Carl and Louise and Chris all for making a, a donation, oh, sacrificial cool, donation. That, that's and uh, uh, some of those were actual um, uh, donations for CJ. And oh, I want to thank you for that. Thank and you all for that. I want to tell you all that uh, uh, took took those very generous donations and uh, added a little bit uh, on our end and sent something out to him, which should make a drastic improvement uh, mm-hmm. on his situation after the conference. I want to thank you all for doing that, and I appreciate your faithfulness to the show. Great and if you do anything else want to go to him, send it on to us. Just designate <laughs> it for CJ. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. Sing it, brother. Now, the problem yeah. is I'm a bass. That was a major falsetto there. Okay. You know, for all those newer Christians, they don't know what in the world we're even singing there. I, but, I wouldn't uh, have known. That's a classic. Yeah. Um, I think what else I need to announce? Any big things coming up? Uh, let's see. I, I knew there was something, but I can't think of it now. I should have written it down. Well, one thing I'm pl- I'm planning to do, and it's just another thing to have to add, and I'm trying to work on some writing for this conference in Branson on July 22nd, 24th. You and I will be speaking at. Mm-hmm. We'll be rolling. Uh, giving it. a couple talks. You and I both rolling. will be doing a couple talks yeah. there, along with there's some minor speakers like Chuck Nissler and. Yeah. Uh, G. Edward Griffin and others. He's and on the Coast Jeremy. to Coast recently. Yeah, G. Edward Griffin. Yeah, that's right. So so was Chuck Nissler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard that. I heard this show. Um, so anyway, uh, trying to get ready for that, some of the things. But I've been thinking about actually adding hi-fi shows mm-hmm. to our listing. Mm-hmm. And I've been debating on that for a long time. It's a little more work for me to do that and upload. It's a little bit bigger. Uh, originally, that's where we were going to put something up there and see if anybody wanted to donate. Mm-hmm. They could have a little button there, but we're we uh, 
uh, always going to have our shows for free. Mm-hmm. And you always have free shows no matter what. Don't worry yeah. about that. A 400-foot Jesus didn't tell you to put that up there. Or are they going to take, <laughs> take me home. home. It's going to take me home. Take you home. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Actually, most of the listeners would wish you'd take me home. But, yeah. you know, I'm like athlete's foot. I keep coming <laughs> back every week. Uh, but anyway, we, we're thinking about putting half-high shows up. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you all have any feedback on that, let me know. They might pop up in the next week or two. We've got some few little upgrades, uh, some things like that that are going on. We, You know, the content doesn't sound any better, but actually the sound does. So yeah. if you're worried more hear, about style or substance, yeah, you can actually hear that in, in high, fi, high fidelity. Yeah. Um, other than that, I think we're ready to get onto some stories. You want to jump in? Let's do it, man. You want me to go first? Yeah. All right, lay it uh, on us. Now I'll, I'll I'll sort of warn the listeners here. We've been going That's through. Uh, we've been going through. You've been going through a lot of different stuff with. Uh, um, what was it? The the. It's a good question. What Clarion is it? Clarion Fund and uh, with yeah, basically uh, at all. Aish Hatora and I can't remember the name of the. the Frank river. Gaffney yeah. is sort of the center of the universe on the Sharia law, leading the uh-huh. the but thing on that. The, who are the people connected yeah, to all that? The yeah, Sharia we're law. Going over all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Sharia scare tactics, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I ran across. I don't know. I don't know if this connects with that at all. Um, but I just ran across a very interesting article about the remnant, which I think would be, uh, you know, based on a lot of the listener emails. You know, there's a lot mm-hmm. of people who are in churches, and not just with this issue, but with a lot of the things that we cover right. on Future Quake over the history of the last six years. People Robert just wonder why people don't get it. Robert Hack keeps telling me to read the remnant. Yeah, and he says. Read it. I've been meaning to download mm-hmm. it, and I think it's a good thing to share because mm-hmm. uh, when you and I go crazy on like, are we making any difference? Are any mm-hmm. of our friends making any difference? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I guess somebody's been there, done that before. Yeah, and has some thoughts. He has some. He has some, a little bit of thoughts here. I'd like to share with the audience. Okay. And um, some of it's encouraging. Some of it's not so encouraging. But uh, I think it really brings a lot of it in perspective. Okay. Uh, it's in four parts, so I'll, in, in lieu of some news stories, we'll just oh. read the remnant. Before you get started, there was one thing I forgot last week to say. What was before that? Before you get in the middle of it. Uh, we mentioned about all the great things that happened at the conference. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had some fantastic time, met great people. People have mm-hmm. even sent photos, which I'm going to put up on yeah. the website and things. People got saved. Uh, well, yeah, that was okay, too. <laughs> uh, but the, the, the peak for, it must have been everybody there was the arrival of Longshoreman Johnny I can't to the say conference. how nice it was to finally get me, get to meet him and hang out with him. And I forgot to mention that, and I wanted to, yeah. to go out there and say to everybody, he is real, the myth, the legend. He, he was just real. I'm so, I got him sick, actually. I feel sorry. You did? I did. I got him. Not was like, this like a hex you put on him or what? what yeah. Was that? I, Some uh, bad ayahuasca? Well, it was, uh, for me, it was... Uh, um, I just had, I have this cold, you can hear the remnant oh, of yeah. it, speaking of remnants. Yeah. And uh, I gave him, I was just sort of spreading the love there a little bit. Mm-hmm. So. One spore at a time, huh? Uh-huh. Oh, well, I'm sure he appreciates that. Anyway, I don't mean to interrupt you, but before you got started, I forgot to mention that, and we'll have, there'll be a picture of, of Johnny the Longshoreman yeah. on our website. We should have done a big, a big, like, me and you and Johnny photo. Just to show that he's real. We should have done that, yeah. Of course, we were getting pulled 20 different ways. It was like a mayhem, and it was only a few hours, seemed like, while we were there. Yeah. So Anyway, so we love you, Johnny. We appreciate you. And uh, just want to make sure that people knew that that, that that really happened. He really exists. Okay, on with your story. Uh, this is called Isaiah's Job. 
Okay. Uh, was the original name of it. Isaiah Albert, is the prophet. Yeah, by Albert J. Nock. What? By the way, when was this? Do you know when this was done? Uh, over 70 years ago. I don't over remember 70. the exact okay. date. But, All right. Um, uh, one evening last autumn, I sat long hours with a European acquaintance while he expounded a political economic doctrine which seemed sound as a nut and which I could find no defect. At the end, he said with great earnestness, I have a mission to the masses. I feel that I am called to get the ear of the people. I shall devote the rest of my life to spreading my doctrine far and wide among the population. What do you think? An embarrassing question in any case, and doubly so under the circumstances, because my acquaintance is a very learned man, one of the three or four really first-class minds that Europe produced in his generation, and naturally I, as one of the unlearned, was inclined to regard his lightest word with reverence amounting to awe. I think I know who he's talking about, too. Still, I reflected, even the greatest mind cannot possibly know everything, and I was pretty sure he had not had my opportunities for observing the masses of mankind, and that, therefore, I probably knew them better than he did. So I mustered my courage to say that he had no such mission and would do well to get the idea out of his head at once. He would find that the masses would not care two pins for his doctrine, and still less for himself, since in such circumstances the popular favorite is generally some Barabbas. Mm-hmm. I even went so far as to say, he is a Jew, that his ideas seemed to show that he was not very well up on his own native literature. He smiled at my jest and asked me what I meant by it, and I referred him to the story of the prophet Isaiah. It occurred to me then that this story is much worth recalling just now so many wise men and soothsayers appeared to be burdened with the message of the masses. Uh, uh, this is He's speaking now. Dr. Townsend has a message. Uh, well, now for him, mm -hmm. which was 70 years ago. Dr. Townsend has a message. Father Coughlin has one. Upton Sinclair, Mr. Lipton, Mr. Chase, and the Planned Economy Brothers, Mr. Tugwell and the New Dealers, Mr. Smith and the Liberty Leaguers. The list is endless. I cannot remember a time when so many uh, energumens were so variously proclaiming the word to the multitude and telling them what they must, be do, what they must do to be saved. This being so, it occurred to me, as I say, that the story of Isaiah might have something in it to steady and compose the human spirit until this tearing of windiness is overpassed. I shall paraphrase this story in our common speech, since it has to be pieced out from various sources, and inasmuch as respectable scholars have thought fit to put out a whole new version of the Bible in the American vernacular, I shall take shelter behind them, if need be, against the charge of dealing irreverently with the sacred scriptures. The prophet's career began at the end of King Uzziah's uh, reign, say about 740 B.C. This reign was uncommonly long, almost half a century, and apparently prosperous. It was one of those prosperous reigns, however, like the reign of Marcus Aurelius at Rome, or the administration of Eubulus at Athens, or of Mr. Coolidge at Washington, that's an interesting one, where at the end of the prosperity suddenly peters out, and things go by the board with a resounding crash. In the year of Uzziah's death, the Lord commissioned the prophet to go out and warn the people of the wrath to come. Tell them what a worthless lot they are, he said. Tell them what is wrong and why and what is going on to happen unless they have a change of heart and straighten up. Don't mince matters. Make it clear that they are positively down to their last chance. Give it to them good and strong and keep, it on, giving, keep on giving it to them. I suppose perhaps I ought to tell you, he adds. Uh, that it won't do any good, the official class and their intelligentsia will turn up their noses at you, and the masses will not even listen. They will all keep on you in, hey, in their own ways. Can, um, this is fascinating. Can you slow down just a hair? Okay. So I, can, so I and the listeners, I need to remind myself. I'm getting all too. fired up about it. I know I you are. Faster. Well, I know it's a long, lengthy piece, too, and you're trying to get through the mm -hmm. basement. 
But just go a little bit slower because I'm finding this a fascinating narrative. They will all keep on their own ways until they carry everything down to destruction, and you will probably be lucky if you get out with your life. Isaiah had been very willing to take on the job, in fact. He had asked for it, but the prospect put out a new face on the situation. It raises the obvious question. Why, if all that were so, if the enterprise were to be a failure from the start, was there any sense in starting it? Ah, the Lord says, you do not get the point. There is a remnant there that you know nothing about. They are obscure, unorganized, inarticulate, like me, each one rubbing along as best they can. They need to be encouraged and braced up because when everything has gone completely to the dogs, they are the ones who will come back and build up a new society. And meanwhile, your preaching will reassure them and keep them hanging on. Your job is to take care of the remnant. So be off now and set about it. Okay, so that's the end of part one. Okay. Do you want me to go on to part two or you yeah, want to read one? you want to. Okay. So. I, I had initially planned it in two parts, or okay. four parts, so I don't okay. want to... We'll go. read another one. Then okay. We'll Apparently you're into it. Uh, Apparently, then, this is part two. Apparently, then, if the Lord's word is good for anything, I do not offer any opinion about that. The only element in Judean society that was particularly worth bothering about was the remnant. Isaiah seems finally to have got it through his head that this was the case that nothing was to be expected from the masses, but that if anything substantial were ever to be done in Judea, the remnant would have to do it. This is a very striking and suggestive idea, but before going on to explore it, we need to be quite clear about our terms. What do we mean by the masses, and what by the remnant? As the word masses is commonly used, it suggests agglomerations of the poor and underprivileged people, laboring people, proletarians, and it means nothing like that. It means simply the majority. The mass man is one who is neither the force of intellect to apprehend the principles issuing in what we know as the humane life, nor the force of character to adhere to those principles steadily and strictly as laws of conduct. And because such people make up the great and overwhelming majority of mankind, they are called collectively the masses. The line of differentiation between the masses and the remnant is set invariably by quality, not by circumstance. The Roman are those who by force of intellect are able to apprehend these principles and by force of character are able, at least measurably, to cleave to them. The masses are those who are unable to do either. The picture which Isaiah presents of the Judean masses is most unfavorable. In his view, the mass man, be he high or low, rich or poor, prince or pauper, gets off very badly. He appears as not only weak-minded and weak-willed, but as, by consequences, knavish, arrogant, grasping, dissipated, unprincipled, unscrupulous. The mass woman also gets off as badly, as sharing all the mass man's untoward qualities and contributing a few of her own in the way of vanity and laziness, extravagance and foible. The list of luxury products that she patronized is interesting. It calls to mind the women's page of a Sunday newspaper in 1928, or the display set forth in one of our professedly, quote, smart, unquote, periodical, periodicals. In another place, Isaiah even recalls the affectations that we used to know by the name Flappergate and a debutante slouch. It may be fair to discount Isaiah's vivacity a little for prophetic fervor. After all, since his real job was not to convert the masses, but to brace and reassure the remnant, he probably felt that he might lay it on indiscriminately and as thick as he liked. In fact, he was as he was expected to do so. But even so, the Judean mass man must have been a most objectionable individual and the mass woman utterly odious.
if the modern spirit, whatever that may be, is disinclined toward towards taking the Lord's word at face value, as I hear is the case these days, we may observe that Isaiah's testimony to the character of the masses has strong collateral support from the respectable Gentile authority. Plato lived in the administ- into the administration of Eubulus when Athens was at the peak of its jazz and paper era, and he speaks of the Athenian masses with all Isaiah's fervency, even comparing them to a herd of ravenous wild beasts. Curiously, too, he applies Isaiah's own word remnant to the worthier portion of Athenian society. Hmm. There is but a very small remnant, he says, of those who possess a saving force of intellect and force of character, too small, preciously as to Judea, to be of any avail against the ignorant and vicious preponderance of the masses. But Isaiah was a preacher and Plato a philosopher. We tend to regard preachers and philosophers rather as passive observers of the drama of life uh, than as active participants. Hence, in a matter of this kind of judgment uh, kind, their judgment might be suspected of being a little uncompromising, a little accurate, or as the French say, a little sagrenal. I don't speak French, Mm -hmm. so I'm doing my best. We may therefore bring forward another witness who is preeminently a man of affairs and whose judgment cannot lie under under the suspicion. Marcus Aurelius was the ruler of the greatest of the empires, and that capacity he had not had the Roman mass man under observation, but he had him on hand 24 hours a day for 18 long years. What he did not know about him was not worth knowing, and what he thought of him was abundantly attested in almost every page of the little book of jottings which he scribbled offhand from day to day, and which he meant for no eye but his own ever to see. His view of the masses, or this view of the masses, is the one that we find prevailing at large among the ancient authorities whose writings have come down to us. In the 18th century, however, certain European philosophers spread the notion that the mass man, in his natural state, is not at all the kind of person that earlier authorities made him out to be, but on the contrary, that he is a worthy object of interest. His untowardness is the effect of environment, an effect for which society is somehow responsible. If only his environment permitted him to live according to his lights, he would undoubtedly show himself to be quite a fellow. And the best way to secure a more favorable environment for him would be to let him arrange it for himself. The French Revolution acted powerfully as a springboard for this idea, projecting its influence in all directions throughout Europe. On this side of this ocean, a whole new continent stood ready for large-scale experiment with this theory. It afforded every conceivable resource whether the masses whereby the masses might develop a civilization made in their own likeness and after their own image. There was no force of tradition to disturb them in their preponderance or to check them in a thoroughgoing dis- disparagement of the remnant. Immense natural wealth, unquestioned predominance, virtual isolation, freedom from external interference and the fear of it, and finally a century and a half of time, such are the advantages which the mass man has had in bringing forth a civilization which should set the earlier preachers and philosophers at naught in their belief that nothing substantial can be expected from the masses, but only from the remnant. His success was unimpressive. On the evidence so far presented, one must say, I think, that the mass man's conception of what life has to offer and his choice of what to ask from life seems now to be pretty well what they were in the times of Isaiah and Plato. (laughs) 
And so does seem the catastrophic social conflicts and convolutions in which his views of life and his demands on life involve him. I do not wish to dwell on this, however, but merely to observe that the monstrously inflated importance of the masses has apparently put all thought of a possible mission of the rem- to the remnant out of the modern prophet's head. This is obviously quite as it should be, provided that the earlier preachers and philosophers were actually wrong and that all final hope of the human race is actually centered on in the masses. Uh, if, on the other hand, it should turn out that the Lord and Isaiah and Plato and Marcus Aurelius were right in their estimate of the relative social value of the masses and the remnant, the case is somewhat different. Moreover, since with everything in their favor the masses have so far given such an extremely discouraging account of themselves, it would, be, it would seem that the question at issue between these two bodies of opinion might most profitably be, most profitably be reopened. And I will pause there and okay. let, you, let you do one. So okay. that's, that's about... That's good. About halfway through the article. About halfway through. Yeah. We're right at the 20-minute point of the show, so that's good. And now for something completely different. Bombs, guns, <laughs> the world's coming to the end! But you know what? <laughs> Speaking of that topic, I have a confession to make to our listeners. Uh, we have probably been, except for like the show with uh, Christopher Knowles and a few things like that, we've probably been a little deficient uh, in, in our our total nutrition on the weirdness end as far as weirdness topics and stuff like that. And I have a confession to make. I tell you, I have, I, I see some things that are somewhat interesting right now. Like, for example, we were talking before the show started that the, that this book they found that supposedly was the time of Christ. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at that. It appears to be a fake now. They've, they're seeing mixed Aramean in it and things like yeah. Aramaic and things. Uh, I read a, I read about, right after it came out, a guy named Thuneman. Who turns mm-hmm. out to be like the chairperson of the Oxford Antiquities Department? Yeah, he said, "It's it's a fake. I stake my career on it." <laughs> I wish he'd take a stronger stand. Yeah. Um, well, uh, all I'm saying, and also even you know they, these FBI files were just opened, the vault, which shows some stuff about Hoover's interest in UFOs and all this other mm-hmm. kind of stuff. I mean, there are a few little citations like that out there, but for the most part. Um, there's nothing super earth-shattering right now that I see. Mm-hmm. And and frankly, I've been so concerned about stuff happening in the church and stuff happening, you know, in our country and stuff like that, that that other stuff's sort of taken a back seat for a little bit. And so unless we have something really big breaking, like a, a big mothership hovering over Nashville or something like that. I got you know? one for you. So I, 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 got I hope it. I'm not letting everybody down too much. If you want to get some good stuff and you haven't heard the whole archive, there's plenty of archive stuff on the... Oh, no, no, I got a, I got a total, I got a total front. weirdness one for you. Okay. Uh, uh, no, no, go ahead. Uh, uh, you want me to go on? You go. Okay. Uh, this one I thought was sort of interesting, uh, given uh, in light of what we've been talking about and the in the rise of theocracy, mm-hmm. and dominionism, Christian theocracy. Liberty University blocks access to local paper. Okay. This was uh, I first saw it on Right Wing Watch, but then I went to the newspaper and found it. It says two weeks ago the Lynchburg News in Advance broke the news that Liberty University took in nearly half a billion dollars last year in money from the government in the form of federal financial aid and noted this could be seen as running counter to the university's smaller government conservative values agenda. Then, suddenly last week, everyone on Liberty University's campus was mysteriously unable to access the news in advance, and Jerry Falwell Jr. is refusing to provide any explanation as to why that was. You understand that? I mean, they did a expose on the university, and suddenly and you can't. the you internet's blocked. Uh, Good job, guys. Woo-hoo! Uh, it says, uh, 
He says the Liberty University administration. Especially funny because it's called Liberty University. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah. The Liberty University administration blocked access to the News in Advance website from its campus for at least one day last week. Liberty University Chancellor Jerry Falwell Jr. did not elaborate on the reason Monday, adding that Liberty's policies allow the administration to block a number of sites at will. By Monday, the News in Advance website had been unblocked. Uh, he said uh, further, he says, most of the websites that are blocked have to do with obscene material, material that is inappropriate, Falwell said, which I guess criticizing the university uh-huh. and account will be inappropriate. Sure. It just so happened last week, the News in Advance was blocked for a day or two. We're a private organization, and we don't have to give a reason, and we're not. So that's that's their idea of you know full disclosure. Here's some more detail from uh, from the website actually from from the newspaper, the News in Advance. Mm-hmm. Look this up. Um, uh, he's, uh, he they say here that Jerry Falwell said that the administration policy allows them to block a number of sites at will. Um, it says Liberty's decision last week to block the News in Advance website, newsadvance.com, was not related to the newspaper's content. Falwell added. I'm sure it was just sort of a fluke. Maybe it was it just was, just related to the stuff that was on the they site, the what they wrote about Liberty. Yeah. Not the actual content of what yeah. they said about Liberty, but just the fact that right. they wrote about Liberty. Well, it was. sounds like to me there's a lot of contradictory facts in this story. Oh, right like, from the place who, who spawned the phrase. Yeah, who came up the term, <laughs> the, the, the board at Liberty Seminary. Yeah. Um, Liberty's decision last week to block the news and advance website. I uh, see... He says, last week was not the first time a news website was blocked on Liberty's computer servers, Falwell said. Liberty has blocked the news in advance and other news sites in the past, he said, declining to provide further details. Uh, last, late last week, the news in advance received phone calls, emails, and faxes from readers wanting to know why the website was blocked on Liberty's campus servers. Liberty University student government president Bethany Davis said she was unaware that the news in advance was blocked on campus last week. I honestly hadn't heard about it, she said. I don't entirely feel confident talking about something I hadn't heard about. There are specific pages that are blocked on campus. I have, haven't ever heard of a news station in general being blocked. Uh, Liberty's Law School Dean Matthew Staver said he was unaware of the block and has never experienced difficulties accessing the news in advance online. I can't imagine why it would be blocked, Staver said. I had no knowledge of it. I hadn't heard about that and it would be surprising to me. Hmm. So... You know, as we as we hear now, they hosted the awakening this last few days, the awakening 2011. Mm-hmm. That had I think Huckabee was there, several I think, uh, um, um, Newt Gingrich. They had um, uh, Rick Joyner. Uh, I think Lou Engel was there. Uh, our friend Frank Gaffney was talking about Sharia law, the dangers of it there. Mm-hmm. A number of these, uh, Janet Porter, others all were there. And they're basically showing that they are the leadership. When they want to be the leaders that will take dominion over our country. And so they will lead it by their dictates. And Liberty is the ones hosting on their ground central of this group. If they do take over our country, and if they're the ones running it, is this the kind of thing we can expect to see? If people have dissenting views, that they're that it will be blocked where it can't be seen? My only country is the, the country that, that God rules over. Everything else is sort of secondary, but yeah, I would you know, say yes. I mean, is that what we're? I mean, because we're warned about if if Sharia gets in, if Sharia law gets in, then there'll be all sorts of liberties taken away and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'll go on the record. I'm against uh, 
violent, radical violent Islam. Uh, even though I would find it very curious for people to look up and find out how it got started in the Western Said intelligence. Kutub. Well, yeah, look yeah. all the way back to British and British and American. Well, the Muslim Brotherhood, but right. the real the real thing that we see here, where they yeah. it ended up, you know, they justify killing their own yeah. folks. Started with a guy named Syed Kutub. I was telling you a little bit about. It. We'll have to right. have a show on it sometime. Right, right. We'll have a show on it. But but uh, what what'll happen is we'll end up looking in a mirror when we look at how this stuff got started. And there are globalists that have a purpose for creating this and an agenda. And we're playing our response, our, our reactionary response to it is playing into their hands mm-hmm. exactly what they want. But I am against violent imposition of any religion. It's, you know, Islam is certainly one of them. Mm-hmm. I do not want to be living like Saudi Arabia where you can't have a church, where, you know, you do something wrong, you get your head on the end of a block. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know. What what our guys do to them is we just waterboard them, which I guess is cleaner. But yeah, um, you know, or people in Guantanamo. But it's anyway, water cure. Yeah. But that's you know I don't want that kind of stuff. But I was I was told that if they if they get their stuff going, that we'll lose all sorts of liberties and things like this. Well, I don't think that's going to be the only scenario in which we can use liberties too. Yeah, unfortunately not. I think anybody who who takes some kind of mandate that God has told them that this is. We're going to make the decisions for everybody. I'm going to be either your apostle or your imam, either one. Uh, we're going to have things that happen to us. So, yeah. Do you want me to do a, a couple more related ones? Let me let me do a, a very quick one. Okay. One paragraph thing, and then you can do it. Okay. Okay. This is an office memorandum from the United States government. Uh, it's to the director of the FBI, and it's from a guy named Guy Hotel who's the SAC, whatever that is, in yeah. Washington. The subject is flying saucers information concerning. Right. Oh, do you already see this? Yeah, I've seen it, but you're talking. Okay. That's Gosh. your weird one. Yeah, that was the... I thought this was like breaking new ground because it just came out. Yeah. Somebody just sent it to me. I'm so the behind the times. Well, me too. Yeah. Anyway, the following information by S.A. Blank. Anyway, uh, so he, he reports, an investigator for the Air Force stated that three so-called flying saucers had been recovered in New Mexico. They were described as being circular in shape with a rave center approximately 50 feet in diameter. Each one was occupied by three bodies of human shape, but only three feet tall, dressed in metallic cloth of a very fine texture. Each body was bandaged in a manner similar to the blackout suits used by speed flyers and and test pilots. According to Mr. Blank, informant, the saucers were found in New Mexico due to the fact that the government has a very high-powered radar set up in that area, and it is believed the radar interferes with their controlling mechanism of the saucers. No further evaluation was attempted by S.A. Blank. This was in the uh, FBI documents, right? This is this was a memorandum that came from a guy named a guy guy hotel, mm-hmm. and it was to the director of the FBI, dated March twenty-second, nineteen fifty. Right. Right. So, and that's not the only document that came out with this thing. By the way, I've been there. Have you been to the vault? I think uh, it's vault.fbi.gov. It's uh-huh. keyword searched. You can uh-huh. find stuff. Yes, on it. Uh, that's that's just where I pulled this right down. Okay, I'm wondering why they're setting this up. Well, it's interesting to see that. Is this is this controlled uh, release of information? I don't know, man. It's interesting to see that the that the agent reporting it didn't actually see it, but uh, he interviews somebody else to see it. Um, it's like, but why would an Air Force officer lie to the FBI? How, you know, mm-hmm. something, something about this doesn't... It's there are documents odd. There are documents even from that week, the, the, the week of Roswell incident in 47, that are in that cache of, mm-hmm. of uh, documents that they have. So there's, uh, there's quite a bit in that. 
release there. I'm wondering about some of the other great mysteries of our time, if there might be something sneaks in there, too. Mm. I don't see them releasing anything they don't want us to know. But Well, that's the that's the interesting thing. It seems the more that I go on, the more that it, it seems like, and you just commented about mm. this. I don't want to steal your thunder, but it seems it's so much of what we've been led to believe is a dichotomous structure, and, um, you know, neither side is really right. They artificially third, give us there's two a choices. third way. Yeah, there's a third. They've set up the goalposts mm-hmm. and expect us. They they frame the debate, and the third way has no part of that debate except in mm-hmm. possibly overwa- overlapping, you know, overlapping sort of Venn diagram sort right. of ways. You know, right. we need to be in we need to be in subset B, and it doesn't matter how much that overlaps with subset A. Mm-hmm. Whereas the society is telling us. It's all in subset A. Subset B is nuts. Right. You don't go over there. Well, I just give some examples for for our listeners. You know the whole idea about the Russia, Soviets, communism versus capitalism, free world versus war on terror, Democrat versus Republican. Those are artificial constructs, and we respond like a trained seal <laughs> to pick a side we're told to do. When when you look in the yeah. Bible, it never shows the earth split up between. Basically, two human factions like that. Uh-huh. Now, granted, there is good and evil. There are good angels and bad angels in heaven, in the heavenlies. But as far as the people of the earth, it just shows the kings of the earth and the merchants of the earth conspiring together. It doesn't say, but on the other hand, there's the good nations, and then there's the good people, and there's there's this uh, sphere of the world that's good. I, I don't see any of that in the Bible. Well, if you define, certainly if you define good as beyond reproach, then absolutely. You know, there's nobody. Well, there. and I would say good is often a temporary state at best. I was going to say, if you define for good entities. as a temporary state, then maybe. For entities, yeah. okay? Mm-hmm. But um, so, so what I'm getting at, you know, when I was saying that, is that when we find ourselves slipping into this thing where we're, we're being presented that there's two sides on this thing, and one of them is all bad and one of them's all good, we are being manipulated. Mm-hmm. That is not something the Bible shows Ding. out of institutions on earth. So. Ding. Um, if I can get back yeah, to hit my us another one. mess, this hit is back to non-weirdness. Well, unless you call Mike Huckabee weird, which is debatable. Uh, this is a funny story I found. It says, Huckabee uh, says Americans should be forced at gunpoint to learn from David Barton. Uh, David Barton introduced Mike Huckabee at the Rediscover God in America conference, praising him as the epitome of the black robe regiment mentality of seeking to return or apply the Bible to every aspect of the culture. Huckabee, in turn, repaid the compliments to Barton, calling him one of the most effective communicators in America and wishing that every American could be forced at gunpoint to listen to every Barton broadcast, which is really what it would be required for me to listen to him. Uh, There's a video of that if you want to see it on Right Wing Watch. I I wish I could give you another site, but they have it, and it's pretty interesting to see. They get Mm -hmm. videos of stuff that, that the Huckabees and the Bartons really don't want circulated. But it's there. Uh, Here's one related to David Barton. Um, Just to make it really articulated, a lot is said about David Barton. People don't always know what he says exactly from his own mouth. Let me me just read this little thing here from David Barton about the Seven Mountains, uh, what he believes about it, because people talk about it with him. But I want to make sure it goes officially on the record where he stands on the Seven Mountains of Dominionism. Okay. This also is a quotation. 
they're going to talk about a quote from his radio program here, and this is on Right Wing Watch. Mm -hmm. It says, as we've been noting for nearly a year now, a theology known as Seven Mountains has been slowly creeping its way into mainstream religious right activism. Beginning with Janet Porter's May Day for America prayer rally at the National Mall last year, this dominionist theology has become increasingly commonplace at religious right events, ranging from the National Day of Prayer events to Jim Garlow's Pray and Act 2010 election effort. As we've explained before, Seven Mountains Dominionism seeks to place Christians in control over the seven forces that shape and control our culture. Business, government, media, arts and entertainment, education, family, and religion. And they would take dominion over each of these areas of our lives. Uh, we would in, you know, give that to them to do that. The reason for this, as Lance Waldau, the leading advocate for Seven Mountains Theology, explained is that Jesus doesn't come back until he's accomplished the dominion of nations. And the way dominion of nations is accomplished is by having Christians gain control of these seven mountains in order to install a virtual theocracy overseen by true apostles who will fight Satan and his Antichrist agenda. In the past, we've caught people like Porter teaming up with Seven Mountains advocate Cindy Jacobs and praying for God to give Christians control over the media and government mountains. We've even found David Barton sharing the stage with Jacobs. Hmm. In fact, later this month, both Barton and Garlow will be joining other Seven Mountain Dominionist spiritual warriors for an event called Government Transformation Summit for Visionary Leaders in Texas. But Barton has tended to keep his ties to this movement under wraps. You know, even though we had um, Brandon House mm -hmm. call him on it, you know. Uh, he, now he's doing the same, pushing the secret, uh, David Barton. Um, uh, so anyway, he's kept under wraps. And we've never heard him publicly, uh, explicitly advocate Seven Mountains Dominionism until today on his radio program. So this is a quote from his radio program, okay? Barton says... There's five areas that you have to be able to influence and control if you're going to take a culture, and that's media, business, government, education, and pulpit. Now, for 20 years, as it turns out, I wasn't even aware of this. Way back, Bill Bright from Campus Crusade, when he was still alive, Lauren Cunningham, Youth with a Mission, these guys got together at the same time and really felt like there were seven areas that had to be taken uh, for, a, uh, for a culture and that these seven are what they gave. Family, religion, education, media, entertainment, business, and government. Now we've grouped some of those together and throw some together. But they uh, said those are the seven areas you have to have. And if you can have those seven areas, you can shape and control whatever takes place in nations, continents, and even the world. As co-host Green says. So it's the same idea saying, look, every single area of the culture you need to be involved in. Barton says, that's right. Christians got to get involved. And there's a scripture that uh, they use that came out of Isaiah 2.2, and it says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. So this is now called the Seven Mountain Prophecy. There's a book out by that name. It says that the Lord's house is going to be established on top of the mountains, and that these are the seven mountains. If you're going to establish God's kingdom, and of course that's our job here to establish in dominion over these things, our kingdom, you know, according to them. Said, said facetiously, obviously. Yes, yeah. by us. Uh, you've got to have these seven mountains. And again, that's family, religion, education, media, entertainment, business, and government. Now, that's what we believed all along, is you've got to get involved in this stuff. Jesus said, you occupy till I come. 
That's what he's taken completely out of context. Out of a parable from a business manager to his underling in a yeah. parable. And he's saying that's our main. I thought it was to go out and go make disciples yeah. of all the nations, mm-hmm. baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, he says, I don't care when he comes. Uh, that's up to him. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, what we're supposed to do is to take the culture in the meantime, and you've got to get involved in these seven areas. It was just the other day that Mike Huckabee was saying that all Americans should be forced to listen to Barton messages at gunpoint and necessary. Is Barton's call to have right-wing Christians take complete control over every aspect of society the message that Huckabee had in mind? Hmm. So, that's explicitly, I mean, there's no, like they said, it was unclear until now. He's been able to sort of insinuate. Now he's gone on the record officially. So. People should go check out a book called The Mighty Wurlitzer. Oh, yeah, about the media? About the media and, and Operation Mockingbird. Yeah, all that stuff. Really, yeah. really, it ends up talking more about before that. But yeah, the the general idea, you know, that here the CIA is doing all this stuff and they're setting people up using nothing but propaganda. Um, gosh, along that note, I have such a great story for that, but I want to get back to the remnant. Okay. Part three? Yeah, part three. Okay. But without following up this suggestion... Um, uh, I wish only, as I said, to remark the fact as things now stand, Isaiah's job seems rather to go begging. Everyone with a message nowadays is like my venerable European friend, eager to take it to the masses. Just like the Doobie Brothers. Taking it to the streets. Taking it, taking it. it. <laughs> I never really cared for that song, I have to be Me honest. Me neither. Uh, his first, last, and only thought is of you mass You don't acceptance. know me because I'm your brother. <laughs> you know, a lot of people like him. That, that breathy kind of singing just didn't do it. You know, I used to hang out with a guy who used to sing with the Doobie Brothers. Really? Yeah. I, he I, got out when the getting was good. Uh, yeah. Well, he made a ton of money playing with them, and then he got divorced. Huh. Mm. You know, like Blackwater, those kind of songs. That, that was okay. But just That's a good one. Taking yeah. it to the streets. Yeah. Me couple. neither. And that was our biggest hit, too. Back to the Remnant. Uh, his care is to put forward is to put his doctrine in such shape as will capture the masses' attention and interest. This attitude towards the masses is so exclusive, so devout that one is reminded of the troglodytic monster described by Plato and the assiduous crowd at the entrance to its cave, trying obsequiously to placate it and win its favor, trying to in- interpret its inarticulate noises, trying to find out what it wants, and eagerly offering all sorts of things that they think might strike its fancy. The main trouble with all this is its reaction upon the mission itself. It necessitates an opportunist sophistication of one's doctrine, which profoundly alters its character and reduces it to a mere placebo. If, say, you are a preacher, you wish to attract as large a congregation as you can, which means an appeal to the masses, and this, in turn, means adapting the term of your message to the order of intellect and character that the masses exhibit. If you are an educator, say, with a college on your hands, you wish to get as many students as possible, and you whittle down your requirements accordingly. If a writer, you aim at getting many readers. If a publisher, many purchasers. If a philosopher, many disciples. If a reformer, many converts. If a musician, many many auditors auditors and so on. But as we see on all sides, in the realization of these several desires, the prophetic message is so heavily adulterated with trivialities in every instance that it, its effect on the masses is merely to harden them in their sins. Which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the remnant, aware of this 
adulteration and the desires that prompt it turn their backs on the prophet and will have nothing to do with him or his message. Isaiah, on the other hand, uh, so he was speaking about what happened mm-hmm. if you try to take the remnant message, uh, you know, Isaiah taking his message to the streets, as the mm-hmm. Duke brothers might say. He says, it doesn't, it's, it's not, that's not how it's done. Isaiah, on the other hand, worked under no such disabilities. He preached to the masses only in the sense that he preached publicly. Anyone who lis- like might listen, anyone who liked might pass by. He knew that the remnant would listen and knew also that nothing was to be expected of the masses under any circumstances. He made no specific appeal to them, did not accommodate his message to their measure in any way, and did not care two straws whether they heeded it or not. He would be totally out of place at the NRB conference, because it was all about Mm -hmm. how to appeal to the masses with the kind of things they're used to. It looks like it Mm -hmm. appeals to their kind of things. Mm -hmm. I can't say, oh, that's wrong, You know, they're trying to reach a broadest base, but that thinking is totally dramatically different. Mm-hmm. And in fact, most of the popular religious teachers we teach today, most of the things you see them do, they will admit amongst themselves. And I think even um, Brandon House suggested this. When you get to that league or knocking on the door and that, there's certain things you're expected to do and to rub shoulders with and to do things a certain way mm-hmm. to get the mass appeal or you're, or you're going you're gonna to miss the big leagues of that Good. kind of mass appeal. I don't, I, you know. Uh, somebody wrote me a letter saying, you know, if you keep saying stuff like that, you're going to miss out on the big leagues. And I thought, I sure hope so. Yeah. Because I don't... Somebody I, actually sent you something with that? Yeah. Really? Yeah. And I thought... And, and I thought... Um, I just figured being with me would be the biggest thing holding you back. Well, it was Pyro. Sorry uh-huh. to rub it in, Pyro. Yeah. I didn't want to let you hear that. But, no, it was, it was just like, so... Yeah. Do I want to sound like the masses? You know what? Am I, I doing this for what? money? If I talked about UFOs and Nephilim every week, we would have a huge... They're coming over the fence. Here they come. Ah! Not, not that I'm not interested in that. Everybody sure. knows what I've shown all that. But, I mean, if we did that every week, we could have a huge audience. Man, we'd have money rolling in. We could sell stuff, you know, like all sorts of trinkets and different kind of things. Mm-hmm. And we'd have big-time business. Sure. If that's what we felt called to do. Mm-hmm. Or what Jesus has us on the planet to do exclusively, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Or we could tell people how to feel better about themselves. That would be the biggest thing. How to have. win your best life. How to live your best life now. How to focus more on yourself. Yeah. And and you want your more stuff. Jesus is going to help you get it. He wants you to have a lot of stuff. Well, just a focus on stuff. you and your unhappiness and how the world really owes you happiness. Mm-hmm. There you go. Huh. Let me let me jump in here. Proceed. As a modern publisher might put it, he was not worrying about circulation or about advertising. Hence, with all such obsessions quite out of the way, he was in a position to do his level best without fear or favor and answerable only to his august boss. And boss, of course, is in capital letters uh, or capital letter, capital B. If a prophet were not too particular about making money out of his mission or getting a dubious sort of notoriety out of it, the foregoing considerations would lead one to say that serving the remnant looks like a good job, an assignment that you can really put your back into and do your best without thinking about results uh, is a real job, whereas serving the masses is is at best only half a job considering the inexorable conditions that the masses impose upon their servants. Mm. They ask you to give them what they want, they insist upon it, and will take nothing else. That's interesting. That sounds like some emails I got. I was going to say, boy, the light clicked on. (laughs) 
and following their whims, their irrational changes of fancy, their hot and cold fits is a tedious business to say nothing of the fact that what they want at any time makes very little call on one's resources of prophecy. <laughs> the remnant, on the other hey, hand... Hey, can I say something real yeah. quick? I don't mean to focus on me. Yeah. But that made me think of something. You know, we have a lot of wonderful people out there. Mm -hmm. People, listeners. Um, I enjoy it. Sometimes they don't agree with us. Sometimes they'll say it very nicely. Mm -hmm. And I love their emails. <laughs> but for every every one of them, I get about ten to respond to that, that are what you just said. Why aren't you doing this? Why well, I want to hear this? Why don't you do this? Why don't you, you know, not not saying hey, this would be a neat topic. Have you all covered this? But really, you know, sort of sort getting of in demanding. your face a little bit. Yeah. And that's where the overwhelming amount of my time is to try to get the people to calm down, try to appease where I can, things like that. You know, and so some of my you great friends out there that I have, if I'm real quick on some of your emails, it's because that's where a lot of time goes, and that's you're you're saying that's. A general feature of the masses. They yeah. sort of want to be drive. They want leaders to lead them, but they really want to drive the leaders. Yeah, almost setting them up like an idol, like so a graven image. You know, my favorite one. You uh, occasionally I see some of the ones. And my favorite one was the person who sent you the bullet pointed list about what we should do for for future quake. Oh, I mean, how to like completely change it? Yeah, yeah. Like it was, it. it was like like three yeah. three or yeah. four main points, and then four or yeah. five sub points under each one. When they meant well. You know? Yeah, and that what they were doing was comparing it to like Dr. Dobson's show or something like that, and mm -hmm. tr tr try to get us more into the big leagues mm -hmm. of looking like that, which it's like a you know square peg in a round hole. Yeah. Okay. The remnant, on the other hand, want only the best you have, whatever that may be. Give them that, and they are satisfied. You have nothing more to worry about. The profit of the American masses must uh, masses must aim. Consciously at the lowest common denominator of intellect, taste, and character among 120 million people. And this is a distressing task. The profit of the remnant, on the contrary, is, the, is in the enviable position of Papa Hayden in the household of Prince Ersthese. Don't know either of those people. Hmm. All Hayden had to do was keep forking out the very best music he knew how to produce, knowing it would be understood and appreciated by those for whom he produced it, and caring not a button what anyone else thought of it, and that makes a good job. That's a lot to be said for that. Yep. In a sense, nevertheless, as I have said, it is not a rewarding job. If you can tough the fancy of the masses and have the sagacity to keep always one jump ahead of their vagaries and vacillations, you can get good returns in money from serving the masses and good returns also in mouth-to-ear type of notoriety. We all know innumerable politicians, journalists, dramatists, novelists, and the like who have done extremely well by themselves in these ways. Taking care of the remnant, on the contrary, holds little promise of any such rewards. A prophet of the remnant will not grow purse-proud in the financial returns from his work, nor is it likely that he will give any great renown out of it. Isaiah's case was exceptional to this second rule, and there are others, but not many. It may be thought, then, that while taking care of the remnant is no doubt a good job, it is not an especially interesting job because it, as a rule, so, it is, as a rule, so poorly paid. I have my doubts about this. There are other compensations to be got out of a job besides money and notoriety, and some of them seem substantial enough to be attractive. Money jobs which do not pay well are yet profoundly interesting, as, for instance, the job of research student in the sciences is said to be, and the job of looking after the remnant seems to be, as, as I have surveyed it for many years from, set, from my seat in the grandstand, to be an, as interesting as any that can be found in the world. Hmm. Um, shall, I, shall I go on to part four? 
Yeah, if you want to, okay. How many, how many more pages you? Uh, just like a page and a half. Okay. Maybe two pages. What chiefly makes it so, I think, is that any given society, in any given society, the remnant are always so largely an unknown quantity. You do not know and will never know more than two things about them. You can be sure of those. Dead sure, as our phrase is. But you will never be able to make even a respectable guess at anything else. You do not know and will never know who the remnant are, nor what they are doing or will do. Two things you do know and no more. No more. First, that they exist. Second, that they will find you. Except for these two certainties, working for the remnant means working in impenetrable darkness. And this, I should say, is just the condition calculated most effectively to procure the interest of any prophet who is properly gifted with the imagination, inside an intellectual curiosity necessary to a successful pursuit of his trade. You know what? I guess we can be thankful that we live in the Internet age with email. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise we'd be throwing something out there in the gray area and not really knowing if somebody wrote a letter or something like yeah, that. Yeah, we're it the 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 level of access and uh level of uh, feedback. The ability, yeah, feedback and everything is yeah. different. Well, and I don't mean this, you know, the, they're talking about somebody who's like some kind of real visionary lofty doing. I don't mean to put us on that par, but I, I sure would wish to, but I don't either. Yeah, I'd like to. Like yeah, to I'd be like, to that. wow, we're like as big as Isaiah and Marcus Aurelius, but we're just two lunatics yeah. with microphones. Yeah. <clears throat> Did you say ticks? Lunatics. Oh, lunatics. Okay, yes. yeah. Uh, the fascination and despair of the historian as he looks back upon Isaiah's Jewry, upon Plato's Athens, or upon the Rome of Antinomies, is the hope of discovering and laying bare the substratum of right thinking and well-doing which he knows must have existed somewhere in those societies because no kind of collective life can possibly go on without it. He finds tantalizing intimations of it here and there and in many places, as in the Greek anthology in the scrapbook of Aulus Gellius, uh, in the poem of Asunimus, and in the brief and touching tribute, Bene Merente, bestowed on, upon the unknown occupants of Roman tombs. So that's the kind of stuff we read most of the time. Yeah, very light. Mm-hmm. After but, we watch Ultraman. Yeah. <laughs> but these are vague and fragmentary. They lead him nowhere in a search for some kind of measure in, on the substratum, but merely testify to what we he already knew of a priori, that the substratum did somewhere exist. Where it was, how substantial it was, was what his power of self-assertion and resistance was. Of all this, they they tell him nothing. Similarly, when the historian of 2,000 years hence, or 200 years, looks over the available testimony for, to the quality of our civilization and tries to get any kind of clear, competent evidence concerning the substratum of right thinking and well-doing which he knows must have been here, uh, he will have a devil of a time finding it. When he has assembled all that he can and has made even a minimum allowance for speciousness, vagueness, and confusion of motive, he will sadly acknowledge that this, his net result is simply nothing. Mm-hmm. A remnant were here, building a substratum like coral insects. So much he knows, but he will find nothing to put him on the track of who, where, and how many they were, and what their work was like. Concerning all this, too, the prophet of the present knows precisely as much and as little as the historian of the future, and that, I repeat, is what makes his job seem so seem to me so profoundly interesting. One of the most suggestive episodes recounted in the Bible is that of a prophet's attempt, the only attempt of the kind on the record, I believe, to count up the remnant. Elijah had fled from persecution into the desert, where the Lord presently overhauled him and asked him what he was doing so far for, away from his job site. 
he said he was running away, not because he was a coward, but because all the remnant had been killed off except himself. He had got away only by the skin of his teeth, and he being now all the remnant there was, if he were killed, the true faith would go flat. The Lord replied that he need not worry about that, for even without him, the true faith would probably manage to squeeze along somehow if it had mm-hmm. to. <laughs> and as for your figures on the remnant, he said, I don't mind telling you that there are 7,000 of them back there in Israel who's, whom it seems you have not heard of, but you may take my word for it that they are there. Yeah. At that time, present... Probably, he was talking about Futurians, right? Uh, those I'd like were, to. Yeah. I'd like to think so. Um, at that time, probably the population of Israel could not run as much to much more than a million or so, and a remnant of 7,000 out of a million is a highly encouraging percentage for any prophet. Uh, with 7,000 of the boys on his side, there was no great reason for Elijah to feel lonesome. And incidentally, that would be something for the modern prophet of the remnant to think of when he has a touch of the blues. But the main point is that if Elijah the prophet could not make a closer guess on the number of the remnant than, than he made when he missed it by 7,000, anyone else who tackles the problem is only going to waste their own time. Interesting point, point as well. The other certainty which the prophet of the remnant may always have is that the remnant will find him. He may rely on that with absolute assurance. They will find him without doing anything about it. In fact, if he tries to do anything about it, he's pretty sure to put him off. He does not need to advertise for them, nor, any, nor resort to any schemes of publicity to get their attention. If he is a preacher or a public speaker, for example, he may be quite indifferent to going on show at receptions, getting his picture printed in the newspapers, or furnishing autobiographical material for publication on the side of human interest. If a writer, he need not make a point of attending any pink teas, autographing books at wholesale, nor entering into specious Freemasonry with reviewers. <laughs> Interesting. Mm. Um, All this and much more of the same order lies in the regular and necessary routine laid out for the prophet of the masses. It is and must be part of the great general technique of getting the mass man's ear, or as our vigorous and excellent publicist, Mr. H.L. Mencken, puts it, the technique of boob humping. Don't know what that means. Mm. Um, The prophet of the remnant is not bound to this technique. He may be quite sure that the remnant will make their own way to him without any adventitious aids. And not only so, but if they find himself employing any such aids, as I said, it is ten to one that they will smell a rat in them and will shear off. The certainty that the remnant will find him, however, leaves the prophet as much in the dark as ever, as helpless as ever in the matter of putting any estimate of any kind upon the remnant. For as appears in the case of Elijah, he remains ignorant of who they are, that they have found him or where they are, or how many. They did not write in him, write in and tell him about it, after the manner of those who admire the vedettes uh, of Hollywood, uh, nor yet do they seek him out and attach themselves to his person. They are not that kind. They take his message much as drivers take the directions on a roadside signboard. That is, with very little thought about the signboard, beyond being gratefully glad that it happened to be there, but with every, th- every thought about the directions. This impersonal attitude of the remnant wonderfully enhances the interest of the imaginative prophet's job. Once in a while, just about often enough to keep his intellectual curiosity in good working order, he will quite accidentally come up with some distant reflection of his own message in an unsuspected quarter. This enables him to entertain himself in his leisure moments with agreeable speculations about the course his message may have taken in reaching that particular quarter, and about what came of it after it got there. Most interesting of all are those circumstances if he... If one could only run them down, 
but one may always speculate about them. Uh, where the recipient himself no longer knows where, nor when, nor from whom he got the message, or even where, as sometimes happens, he has forgotten that he got it anywhere, and imagined that it is all a self-sprung idea of his own. Kind of Holy Spirit-like, mm-hmm. almost. Such instances as these were probably not infrequent for, without presuming to enroll ourselves among the remnant, uh, we can still Uh, we can all no doubt remember having found ourselves suddenly under the influence of an idea, the source of which we cannot possibly identify. It came to us afterward, as we say. That is, we are aware of it only after it has shot up full-grown in our minds, leaving us ignorant of how and when and by what agency it was planted there and left to germinate. It seems highly probable that the prophet's message message often takes takes some such course with the remnant. Uh, if, for example, you write or speak, uh, put forth an idea which lodges in the unbeweichting of a casual member of the re- remnant. I don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. It might be connected to my elbow for all Could I know. Be, I don't yeah. know. Uh, uh, a casual member and sticks there fast. For some time it is inert, then it begins to fret and fester until presently invades the man's subconscious and, as one might say, corrupts it. Meanwhile, he has quite forgotten about how it came by the idea in the first instance, and even perhaps thinks he has invented it. And in those circumstances, the most interesting thing of all is that you may never know what the pressure of that idea will make him do. For these reasons, it appears to me that Isaiah's job is not only good, but also extremely interesting, and especially so at the present time when nobody is doing it. Mm-hmm. If I were young and had the notion of embarking on the prophetical line, I would certainly take up this branch of the business. And therefore, with that, therefore, I have no hesitation about recommending it as a career for anyone in that position. It offers an open field with no competition. Our civilization so completely neglects and disallows the remnant that anyone going in with, it, with an eye single to their service might pretty well count on getting all the trade there is. Even assuming that there is some social salvage to be screened out of the masses, even assuming that the testimony of history to their social value is a little too sweeping, that it depresses hopelessness a little too far, one must yet perceive, I think, that the masses have profits enough enough to spare. Interesting. Even admitted that in the teeth of history that the hope of the human race may not be quite exclusively centered in the remnant, one must perceive that they have social value enough to entitle them to some measure of prophetical encouragement and consolation, and that our civilization allows them none whatever. Every prophetic voice is addressed to the masses and to them alone. The voice of the pulpit, the voice of education, the voice of politics, of literature, drama, journalism. All these are directed towards the masses exclusively, and they marshal the masses in the way that they were going. One might suggest, therefore, that aspiring prophetical talent may well turn to another field, Sat patri priamak datum, which is, I don't know what that means. Whatever obligation of the kind may be due, the masses is already monstrously overpaid. So long as the masses are taking up the tabernacle of Moloch and Chion, their, mm. their images in following the star of their god, Bunkum, um, they will have no lack of prophets to point the way that leadeth to the more abundant life. And hence a few of those who feel the prophetic afflatus might do better to apply themselves to serving the remnant. It is a good job, an interesting job, much more interesting than serving the masses. And moreover, it is the only job in our whole civilization, as far as I know, that offers virgin field. Hmm. That's it? That's it. Wow. Um, 
But well, I wonder what that person would have thought about the internet, the opportunities to serve the remnant via the internet. I don't know. Very interesting. How do, how do, how could our listeners get a hold of that so they could uh, actually I believe look at it and I, I got it up. I, I got it. I believe it is posted today or possibly yesterday. By the time they hear this, it'll yeah. be, you know, let's let's say try Monday mm-hmm. uh, uh, on, at um, uh, com. That's LeRockwell.com. Just type in uh, Albert J. Nock, The Remnant, or Albert J. Nock, Isaiah's Job. N-O-C-K? N-O-C-K, yeah. Okay. It's a classic. It's considered mm-hmm. a classic. And yeah, I know mm-hmm. Robert Hyde likes it, so that's good yeah. enough for me. It's also, it's also posted... Uh, up at Sycamore 3. Okay. Uh, and bits and, bits and portions. Yeah, you can find yeah. a link to it there. Well, um, just for our Futurians, the ones we've met and talked to on email or, or we saw at conferences, they feel like us in that most of even their Christian friends and close acquaintances mm-hmm. think that they're nuts. I know that Brother Bob in. I know their brother Bob has mentioned that he tries to bring the stuff up in yeah. church and everybody looks at him like he's got three heads. Right, right, right. So I mean that's a common thing. Mm-hmm. And so you feel exasperated, like, you know, the mainstream people don't want to hear you even within the church. And uh, I know I, I get that way sometimes. Yeah. And we need to remember this this talk that it there is worth in reaching a remnant. Mm-hmm. And it's not a waste of time. Uh, for the people who will hear what yeah, you just say. Yeah, you know, I mean, Jesus is coming for his bride. You know, he wants a pure bride. He doesn't mm-hmm. want a bride that, like, rolled in, rolled in the dirt. Yeah. He'd be like, it's sort of clean. <laughs> well, you want some more, something different? Please, sir. Palette? That was a pretty heavy thing. Yeah. That was I, right I feel, in an you hour know, and five minutes. I'm sorry. That's okay. That's okay. I, I feel uplifted for reading it, though. Oh, no, that's good. That's good. I, I mean, hope our listeners enjoyed that. Yeah, we we probably lost a few. I'm sorry. Were they anti-remnant people? They were no. They're just anti-bionic. Oh well. That's that's a that's a large remnant. So do they just listen just to ridicule you? Is that why they hang on? Sometimes I wonder. Yeah, yeah. We we have a few like that. Um, in general. Okay. Um, I'll get I'll get off this kick on things. I'll just get a few small ones cleaned up, and then. Would you like me to pick up my little saga where I left our journey on figuring out this whole Frank Gaffney web? I thought you would never ask, my okay. friend. Well, let me finish just a few little short stories here. Something that I recommend anybody want to watch because it was very telling mm-hmm. is that um, there is video on YouTube where John Stewart uh, interviewed Mike Huck- Huckabee just recently. And uh, he's talked for at least a half hour on... Uh, Mike Huckabee's uh, un, unbowing praise uh, for David Barton as mm-hmm. the premier historian uh, on the Founding Fathers. And John Stewart, you know, he's very critical of Christianity and, and things. He's real cynical. But I thought he did a really, really fair job and asked some really good questions and really didn't get good answers hmm. uh, from it. You know, what's, you know what I found fascinating? You want to talk about remnant characteristics is it not fascinating that some of the most telling news that we see in the telling interviews come from comedy shows yeah i know like I know. stephen colbert and and mm-hmm. john stewart especially we see a lot of christians would disagree with that because they say something irreverent and they turn off the satire even though that may mm-hmm. improve of course you know people generations ago would have turned off gulliver travels because um you know john swift did the same thing you know, with that kind of writing. Mm-hmm. Um, we should listen to the village idiot, you know, which of sometimes that's our role. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, to do that because 
they they can put or the court jest or whatever you want to call them, because they put in there truth bound up and you have to throw away the bathwater well, and keep the baby. Well, in a in in a place like in a place like China, let's say mm-hmm. communist China, where everything was propaganda. Yeah. You know, the only person who could get away with telling truth are the people who were telling jokes. Yeah. You right. Know, people would laugh at it. Right. Yeah, because it was funny, and the reason it was funny is because it, in some way, refracted truth. Well, Robert Hyde just told me, and maybe been you too, that he wants to see more comedy in what we do, in humor, that it's an effective way to, you know, and actually communicate truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, during the discussion on this show, um, he he uh, he he questioned Huckabee about his support for and praise of Barton in his pseudo history. It says, during the discussion, Stewart mentioned a few of Barton's more outrageous claims by name, uh, specifically that Jesus opposed the minimum wage and the estate tax, and that God is at the boundary of nations. That must be like in some of those Gnostic Gospels or something. Could have been. Could have yeah. been. Uh, Jesus else, opposed the estate tax. Something else I said really interesting. To, yeah. What? Uh, yeah, I, I saw him say that in the thing. Um Huckabee uh, says that he answers to Janet Porter. And this is the guy who's probably going to run for president. He is leading the conservative polls right now, Mike Huckabee, particularly the value voters. Uh, uh, he, he says, uh, uh, this is an, another post from Right Wing Watch. It says, in honor of the news that Faith Two Actions, Janet Porter had scheduled a fetus to testify on behalf of her heartbeat bill. We went and dug up some unused footage of 2009 when Mike Huckabee spoke at How to Take Back America conference that Porter co-organized with Phyllis Schlafly uh, and a variety of groups like the American Family Association, World Net Daily, Vision American, Liberty Council. At the event, Huckabee was introduced by Porter herself, and upon taking the microphone, quipped that there are two Janets who he immediately, obediently answers, his wife and Janet Porter. Hmm. And he, he elaborates on that on the video. If you want to go to Right Wing Watch, you can look that up, just keyword search that. But he basically says he just answers to to her. But there's another guy here who comes up all the time in these groups, Brian Fisher. Uh, I've heard that name quite yeah, a few times. And yeah, and he's affiliated. He's the director of issue analysis for the American Family Association. He, he's, he's one of the leaders in the Christian community on this stuff. He always says some pretty intense things. Mm-hmm. And here's just a little summary of some things he, he was saying the other day. He says, uh, uh, um, on Friday, uh, we reported that Brian Fisher the director of issue analysis for the American Family Association, urged the U.S. to require immigrants, Muslims in particular, to convert to Christianity, that the U.S. should require that. Mm -hmm. Uh, At some point after it was posted, the AFA removed Fisher's article. Now, he's one of their main people running it. They removed his article from their website, and he he then rewrote the three paragraphs uh, so that now the article argues the exact opposite of what he originally said. What? Yeah, in the original article, here's what Brian Fisher said, and he comes up all the time, you know, mm-hmm. and stuff. And I think the gentleman we're going to be having in a few weeks, a young man, writes affiliated with the same group, but mm-hmm. and sometimes disagreement with this. So mm-hmm. I may be wrong on that, but anyway, he wrote originally, allowing Muslims to immigrate into the United States, a Christian nation by origin, history, and tradition. I'm sure Chris Pinto would agree with that. Without insisting that they drop their allegiance to Allah, Mohammed, and Quran, and Sharia law, is to commit cultural suicide. 
Uh, so you'd have to tell them, I guess, you know, right when they got to immigration, that they would have to renounce Allah when they got to the thing there in mm-hmm. Muhammad. It says, we believe in freedom of religion for Muslims like we do for everybody else. But if they insist on clinging to their religion, uh, they will need to exercise their freedom of religion in a Muslim country which shares their values. So they believe in freedom of religion, but not if they cling to it. They've hung themselves by their own petard in that case, because what they're saying is, as long as you put the state before God, you're okay. Yeah. Which is what Caesar wanted with Rome. Just pinch the stuff. You can go privately say whatever. Just Mm -hmm. pinch the stuff in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, except they want a form of religion to want them to to pronounce instead of what they have. It says... uh, they need to uh, exercise their freedom of religion in a Muslim country which shares their values. Death for those who leave Islam, the beating of wives by their husbands, and the labeling of Jews as apes and pigs. Immigration is a privilege and a right, and our policy should be to admit to our shows, shores only those with a commitment to the full assimilation to American culture, adopting our faith, our heroes, and our history. Does that mean I have to adopt his faith, heroes, and history too? Even if I'm already here, what I know, have to conform the, to white. Uh, one of the most interesting arguments. One of the most in- interesting arguments about the WikiLeaks saga yeah. was when they uh, uh, they were saying Julian, Julian Assange, who's not a United States citizen, broke yeah. a bunch of treason laws, uh, you know, for the United States and held him liable. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to get a hold of right. him, in, in, you know, in an international sit- setting. Right. You know, the obvious thing that Ron Paul said was. If uh, if I do something that's against Iranian laws, do the Iranians have a right to come and get me? You know, right? And I see right. This, it's the exact same right. situation. Yeah, you know, people don't like that honesty. Okay, he continues on here. He says, someone with a Muslim background who wants to become an American had best be prepared to drop his Islam and Quran at Ellis Island. This is getting to be the prevailing Christian view. Okay, sure. So ancient Israel, okay, here's the article writer commenting on his writing here. Now, this is American Family Association he writes for, a very, very prominent Christian group. And he says, so ancient Israel offers a paradigm of what a sensible and sane immigration policy should look like. Mm-hmm. It's simple. Don't break the law. That is, coming through the front door instead of breaking through a window. Convert to Christianity. Fully assimilate. Become an authentic American, not a hyphenate American, and support yourself. Mm-hmm. If you commit to those things, then you're welcome here. If you don't... It's best for you to stay at home. Now, here's what they... They pulled that down, and here's what was put up there instead. Okay? Here's what it says instead of what I just read. It says, Does this mean that folks need to convert before they immigrate? No. But at a minimum, it means making sure that immigrants to the United States affirm and believe in the superiority of the Judeo-Christian system of values and truth claims over alternative value systems such as Sharia law. Immigration is a privilege, not a right. And our policy should be to admit to our shores only those with a commitment to full assimilation to American culture, adopting our values, our heroes, and our history. Uh, So, anyway. Mm. But it kept the part in there about, you know, it's best for you to stay home if if you're not willing to do that. Um, It says, this wouldn't be the first time the AFA censored their chief spokesman. As the group in February scrubbed Fisher's article where he said that Native Americans were rightfully expelled from their land and are punished with poverty and alcoholism for not converting to Christianity. That's insane. And he's like a major, 
a Christian spokesman. And he's part of a lot of these groups that we cite all the time that meet together. Hmm. Just last week, Fisher removed and altered his piece claiming that American uh, the African Americans um, basically uh, um, do a sexual act like rabbits. That was what he had on his website, Christian website. How come this guy hasn't been sued? I don't know. I this don't is know. insane. But he's he's right in the middle of these people. Yeah. Um, would you like me to give a little bit on on this guy that uh, what we where we left off last week? Mm-hmm. I know we're toward the end of our show. I'll give you a little bit on this. Well, I mean, we can just keep going. I've got several great stories. Well, you want? I don't want to bore people to death. I'm, I'm gonna get pretty pooped. Iceland. Well, I'll, I'll just give like, you a quick headline here as you as you're shuffling papers. Okay, I'm ready. Iceland. Voters reject ICE-SAFE payback referendum yet again. I didn't understand what you said there. They rejected what? They rejected the ICE-SAFE payback referendum yet again. This is the payback creditor? Yeah, this is the second or the third time uh, Britain and, and Britain and the Netherlands plan to sue Iceland for $4 billion paid to ICE-SAFE depositors after, after the country voted against the payment of the money for a second time in referendum. Uh, so that is, uh, the British and the Dutch believe that the the Icelandic citizens are on the hook for British deposits. Yeah. Yeah. The public is on the hook for a private bank's nonsense. They better watch. They'll find an excuse for a war there. I was going to say, you know that they, you know they listed Iceland's government as a terrorist organization for a short period of time. <laughs> Britain, did, huh? Yeah. Which, yeah. you know, obviously act of war and all that stuff. Well, so. they better drop whatever they believe in Iceland if they're coming to America. That's all I got to say. Well, that makes me want to move to Iceland, uh, honestly. I know. So, anyway, okay, that was just a little quickie right there. Okay. Uh, now, where we left off last time, again, we, we sort of talked about who was driving the Sharia law mm-hmm. emphasis. Frank Gaffney is the main guy pushing it. I've gotten a whole lot more information on him. I can't get to all of it tonight. Um, and it's going to have some interesting characters later on. But as we started seeing who was funding a lot of this stuff, including the documentaries like Uranium and things putting out, you've got this Clarion Fund that's involved. You've also got the 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 very strong uh, Zionist Israeli government group, Aisha Torah, mm-hmm. that's involved. And then you've got the billionaire we talked about last week, uh, Mr. Scaife. Um, and we talked a little bit about him. I probably was a little boring for our listeners when it was in detail about his life. It was life. Wild, man. But what we concluded with was that there was a man who was in the bathroom in the hallway just down the hall from his office there in Pittsburgh mm-hmm. who was found dead, gunshot, and who said it was a, a suicide. Uh, suicide. Now, um, like Renzo Roca who got sh- shot three well, times in the head. It was a suicide. Yeah, three, three, yeah. And yeah, keep trying. Yeah. Um, when they first were on the scene, they said it they shot through the left side of his head, and the bullet came out the left side of his head. Later, when the coroner said that he shot up through the roof of his mouth, and the bullet lodged deep inside his brain. So, sort of curious how it would be that those two different mm-hmm. things on scene. Um, but um, this fellow, his name was Steve Kangas, I believe, or Kangas. It's K-A-N-G-A-S. Mm-hmm. And he is somewhat of a um, legend in more of the left circles because mm-hmm. he sort of converted over to a lot of the leftist belief systems. I just want to tell our listeners ahead of time there. Um, and I wanted to read, but his website, which had his beliefs, was on his website, and it was considered valuable enough that people have kept his website up since I think it was like 1999, have Whoa. paid to keep his website going 
for this information that he put up shortly before his demise. That's that's kind of a you're you're really saying something. That's sort of interesting. That. I know. Well, let me just say a little bit. A few things he put in his thing about me. Okay, on the website. Mm-hmm. This is some descriptions. Of, I'm just going to hit excerpts of it. Okay. Um, he he had gone into the army. Um, he went and learned Russian while he was at the Presidio at Monterey, uh, doing this for the army. And he says, I just began wondering why everyone complained about army life when they shipped me off to Fort Bragg to play G.I. Joe in the dirt. While my paperwork was still being processed, President Reagan decided to invade uh, Grenada. I waved my comrades goodbye at neighboring Pope Air Force Base, unable to join them without my paperwork. No matter, I got to see a war anyway in Central America, doing things I'm not at liberty to discuss, but which you can read about in the newspaper. He says, in 1984, they shipped me off to Berlin to do more of the things I can't discuss. <laughs> Basically, this involved electronic eavesdropping on Soviet military units in Eastern Europe, analyzing the transcripts and reporting back to NATO. It was uh, because of, see, it was here that I learned that a Soviet invasion of Western Europe was impossible. Of course, that's not what they told us back here. Uh, because their soldiers lack certain sophisticated training, like, oh, say, driving skills. <laughs> but I must not have been in the entire intelligence loop before our leaders could often be seen on television solemnly warning us of the grave Soviet threat that hung over Europe like a like a pall. When was this? This is 84. Uh, yeah, okay. Team B. Okay. Team B in its aftermath. Well, he Directly says, driving that. He says, and then there were the wake-up calls, the terrorist bombing of a Berlin discotheque only a few blocks away from my living quarters. Done by a guy named Lemke, who later turned out to be part of Operation Gladio. Well, this stuff starts affecting him, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, he says, in response, Reagan ordered the bombing of Libya, even though it later turned out that we had no proof that he did it. The subsequent terrorist alert forced me to cancel my vacation to Spain. Um, he says, with an honorable discharge in one hand and the GI Bill in the other, I flew back to California in 86, to recreate the college lizard lifestyle, port of entry to said lifestyle was the University of California, Santa Cruz. And you know that's You know he's got to be cool scary. if he's going to Santa Cruz. He's doing that. Yeah, I don't know if they had a tombionic statue there at the time. Uh, going from the Army to USCS, it was like going from conservative heaven to liberal heaven at warp speed. Their kindly professors pointed out to me the illogic of defending life by taking it destroying the planet for a buck and shutting down schools to build more prisons. I'm now thoroughly brainwashed to believe that kindness and human decency are positive traits to be emulated and encouraged. I know that this is a radical thought for a straight white male, but I suppose it proves that European traits are not really, really genetic. Hmm. Today I have a major in Russian studies with an emphasis on political science and economics. However, I'm applying to grad school in U.S. political science which has interested me much more since communism fell. Now, does this sound like something guy wants to kill himself? He's no, applying to like graduate school. Straightforward. In political. Yeah, and they're saying he just killed himself. I visited Russia in 89, and the trip was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. The Russians were the warmest, friendliest people I've met anywhere. By the way, I had the same experience with the Russians. Yeah. Incredible folks, people. Yeah. Uh, as they say, they had a... a uh, Criminal gangster government is how they referred to them when I was well, there. Well, that so, may be, but the masses were. But that's something we had were, in common. The mass, yeah, I was going to say the masses were cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But I mean, they had contempt for their government like we do ours. Um, 
It says, but their country was in the final stages of collapse with devastating environmental problems and economic stagnation. Yet more proof, if more be needed, that dictatorships are disastrous. Long live democracy. I have many interests in life, among them traveling, writing, movies, and socializing in Santa Cruz's deservedly famous coffee shops. But one of the biggest is chess. From 92 to 95, I served as the Santa Cruz Chess Club president, where I'm both a tournament director and strong A player. Teaching chess to school children is one of my life's greatest joys. So that's the guy who was supposed to be so distressed that he would shoot himself to death in this man's office. But he wrote sort of a manifesto. Interesting. And if you'd like to hear it, it relates to some of your research. <clears throat> if you'd like to hear a little bit of it. Wow, I would very much like to. We can't cover all of it, but I'll, I'll give you an initial taste. Okay. If you find it interesting, this is like the history of the world. He calls it Origins of the Overclass. And this was his manifesto that's been preserved. And remember, this is the guy who uh, was found dead in Scape's office. And if maybe next week we get on toward the end I'd of it. To. I'd love to read up on it. It's, it's fascinating, okay? Mm-hmm. Okay, this is by Steve Kangas. Uh, the wealthy have always used many methods to accumulate wealth, but it was not until the mid-70s that these methods coalesced into a suburbly, organized, cohesive, and efficient mach- machine. After 75, it became greater than the sum of its parts, a smooth-flowing organization of advocacy groups, lobbyists, think tanks, conservative foundations, and PR firms that hurtled uh, the richest 1% into the stratosphere. The origins of this machine, interestingly enough, can be traced back to the CIA. This is not to say the machine is a formal CIA operation, complete with code name and assigned documents. Although such evidence may yet surface, in previously unthinkable domestic operations such as MKUltra, Chaos, and Mockingbird Show, this to be a distinct possibility. Hmm. But what we know already... Now, this guy worked for high-level intelligence classified within the military, okay? Mm-hmm. But what we do know already indicts the CIA strongly enough. Its principal creators were Irving Crystal, okay, that would be Bill Crystal, the guy on Fox News, his dad, mm. uh, Paul Ryrick, William Simon, Richard Mellon Scaife, Frank Shakespeare, William F. Buckley, the Rockefeller family, and more. Well, at least two of those names, uh, as I was mentioned earlier, subscribe to a Straussian political philosophy, which means that you can basically make up anything you want, and that mm. signifies you as one of the ruling class. Neocon. Yeah. Formerly Democrat, formerly Trotsky, communist origin. Mm-hmm. Uh, neocon. And now they're on Fox News. As I would, Fox I would say more, more fascist than Trotskyite. But well, that's, they're known you know. as Trotskyites. Um, oh, okay. Okay, it says almost all the machines creators had CIA backgrounds. During the 1970s, these men would take take the propaganda and operational techniques they had learned in the Cold War and apply them to the class war. Hmm. I found this interesting. Mm -hmm. The rich. They're trying to co-opt the rich into their system. Hmm. Therefore, it is no surprise that the American version of the machine bears an uncanny resemblance to the foreign versions designed to fight communism. The CIA's expert and comprehensive organization of the business class would succeed uh, beyond their wildest dreams. In 1975, the richest 1% owned 22% of America's wealth. By 1992, they would nearly double that to 42%, the highest level of inequality in the 20th century. Hmm. How did this alliance start? The CIA had always recruited the nation's elite, millionaire businessmen, Wall Street brokers, members of the national news media, and Ivy League scholars. During World War II, General Wild Bill Donovan became the chief of the Office of Strategic Services. William Donovan, yep. And the forerunner of the CIA. He was a uh, Knight of Malta. 
Mm-hmm. That's right. Among other things. We'll get back to that. Okay. Donovan recruited so exclusively from the nation's rich and powerful that members eventually came to joke that OSS stood for, oh, so social. Uh, another early elite was Alan Dulles, who served as director of the CIA from 53 to 61. Not a nice guy. Yeah. Dulles was a senior partner at the Wall Street firm of Solomon and Cromwell. Did you know he came from Wall Street? I did know that. He, uh, I was going to say, he had some ties to big oil, I think. Mm-hmm. The, um, yeah. I was going to say well, Rockefeller. Right. Yeah, You're exactly Rockefeller. right. He says he represented the Rockefeller Empire and other mammoth trusts, corporations, and cartels. Mm-hmm. They just can't stay away from those Rockefeller folks, these big groups, can they? Well, they but they want us to trust well. these guys. They want us to trust them as our leaders. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was also a board member of the J. Henry Schroeder Bank with offices in Wall Street, London, Zurich, and Hamburg. His financial interest across the world would become a conflict of interest when he became head of the CIA. Like Donovan, he would recruit exclusively from society's elite. By the 1950s, the CIA had riddled the nation's businesses, media, and universities with tens of thousands of part-time on-call operatives. That's interesting. You know, one of the things that I found, uh, there's a guy that I referenced in my speech, and I hate to keep doing this, but there's a guy I referenced in my talk at uh, 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 the Politics of Religion, a guy named Oswald Winter, who said that uh, he was an ITAC, NATO, CIA liaison officer, very like the top liaison officer that they had who was in charge of most everything there and uh uh, the cia says well we don't know who he is and everything Mm -hmm. but his name pops up in a 1965 document and so i went and researched it it turns out that by his own his own thing he was recruited in uh the late 50s by the cia to be a spy on campus and and that it turns out the cia had uh, it just came out just recently that the CIA had a had a program where they did that. They, Maybe that's why you perked up when I read earlier about the anti-Sharia groups that had Campus Watch. Uh-huh. That Daniel Pipes or Peeps had Campus Watch as yeah. mm-hmm. um, where the where the battle is. Yeah. Um, it says that the employment that these people had with the agency took a variety of forms, which included leaving one's profession to work for the CIA in a formal capacity, mm-hmm. staying in one's profession, using the job as a cover for CIA activity, I said this uh, undercover could be full-time, part-time, or on call, staying in one's profession, occasionally passing on information to the CIA, or passing through the revolving door that has always existed between the agency and the business world. Historically, the CIA and the society's elite have been one and the same people. This means that their interests and goals are the one and the same as well. Perhaps the most frequent description of the intelligence community is the good old boy network, where members socialize, talk shop, conduct business, and tap each other for favors well outside the formal halls of government. Many common treats made it inevitable that the CIA and corporate America would become allies. Both share an intense dislike of democracy and feel that they should be liberated from democratic regulations and oversight. Both share, it's interesting that you you see the aristocracy Mm -hmm. and the CIA have this in common. Mm -hmm. Okay. Both share a culture of secrecy, either hiding their actions from the American public or lying about them to present the best public image. Mm-hmm. And both are in a perfect position to help each other. How? International businesses give CIA agents cover, secret funding, top quality resources. I'm going to stop here in this last paragraph here. Uh, and we can go on for four hours for all I care. That's okay. And important um, contacts in Ford lands. In return, the CIA gives corporations billion-dollar federal contracts for spy planes, satellites, and other high-tech spycraft. 
Well, that that would of course make us a fascist country then, because fascism the corporatism, is yeah, yeah fa- fascism, corporatism. It's yeah. the marrying of large industry and government right. to with the individual freedom being as, at the secondary. That too pays it. Yeah. Price. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it says businessmen also enjoy the romantic thrill of participating in spy operations. The CIA also gives businesses a certain amount of protection in privacy from the media and government watchdogs under the guise of, quote, national security. Finally, the CIA helps American corporations remain dominant in foreign markets by overthrowing governments hostile to unregulated capitalism and installing puppet regimes whose policy favors American corporations Hmm. at the expense of their people. The CIA's alliance with the elite turned out to be an unholy one. Each enabled the other to rise above the law. Indeed, a review of the CIA's history is one of such crime and atrocity that no one can reasonably defend it, even in the name of anti-communism. Before reviewing this alliance in detail, it's useful to know the CIA's history of atrocity first. I'm going to give you two quick paragraphs just because I know you like data. In this mm-hmm. Okay, here's some stuff you may have heard of. Crimes of the CIA. During World War II, the OSS actively engaged in propaganda, sabotage, and countless other dirty tricks. Yeah. After the war... And even after the CIA was created in 47, the American intelligence community reverted to harmless information gathering and analysis, thinking that the danger to national security had passed. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah. Well, that changed in 48 with the emergence of the Cold War. And that year, the CIA recreated its covert action wing, innocuously called the Office of Policy Coordination. Mm -hmm. Its first director was a Wall Street lawyer, Frank Wisner. According to its secret charter, its responsibilities included okay, propaganda, economic warfare, pre- preventative direct action, including sabotage, anti-sabotage, demolition and evacuation procedures, subversion against hostile states, including assistance to underground resistance groups and support of indigenous anti-communist elements in threatened countries of the free world. Now, none of that sounds like intelligence, data gathering. That's actually just a special forces group. Yeah, basically. that sounds like that's not intelligence. Like that's, yeah. that's not no, listening. That's not listening what your enemy's doing and reporting doing it. It's bad it's, stuff. Yeah, it's making stuff. Okay, yeah. by 1953, the Dirty Tricks Department of the, the CIA had grown to 7,200 personnel and commanded 74% of the CIA's total budget. The following quotes descri- uh, describe the culture of lawlessness that pervaded the CIA. Stanley Lovell, a CIA recruiter for Wild Bill Donovan, said, What I have to do is to stimulate the Peck's bad boy underneath the surface of every American scientist and say to him, Throw all your normal law-abiding concepts out the window. Here's a chance to raise Mary Hell. Come help me raise it. George Hunter White, writing on the C- his CIA escapades, says, I have told wholeheartedly in the vineyards because it was fun, fun, fun. Where else could a red-blooded American boy lie, kill, cheat, steal, rape, and pillage with the sanction and blessing of the all-highest? And a retired CIA agency co-worker with 20 years' experience uh, said, I never gave a thought to the legality or morality. Frankly, I did what worked. And I'm going to leave it at that. Wow, but that's uh, some fascinating stuff. You he's got going there. to start tying in some stuff, and Mister Scape's going to reappear in the narrative. Uh, I know we're deep down the the, the wormhole here, but mm-hmm. um, we're getting sort of late here. Do you want me to do some emails? Man, I wish we could go for like four hours. I got like half a dozen really neat stories. I got a bunch of them too. Do you want to throw one more on me? Then we'll I'll, do. I'll just throw out 
I'll just throw out a, a headline. U.S. trains activists to evade security forces in foreign countries. Hmm? The United States is training thousands of cell phone and Internet pro-democracy campaigners worldwide to evade security forces in what, is, what it calls a cat-and-mouse game with authoritarian governments. The U.S. government is sponsoring efforts to help activists in Arab and other countries gain access to technology that circumvents government firewalls, secures telephone text and voice messages, and prevents attacks on websites. So, hmm. there you go. Okay. Next time you see a, a grassroots rising. They had help. Yep. There you have it. We've reported on that. I feel like I've reported on that. I've, re- I've, I've read at least four stories on it already. Since you're not printing your articles on paper anymore, uh-huh. you need to jot them down for me so I can get them okay. in our listing or that send one, me an email. That one is at France24.com. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, one of those. Slash EN slash 21104U08. I can tell I've made you mad because I got that look. That one right there. Um, This is an an email. Uh, This is from, I've still got some January emails I'm getting through, so I apologize for this. This is from Sherry, a good friend of ours, Mm -hmm. uh, on the the show. She says, um, um, Israeli banks finance newspaper calling for genocide. This was uh, information she sent me. She says, I'm beginning to discern the scriptures about end-time Israel, such as that city called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Kabbalah witchcraft is a most common practice. The love of mammon is rampant. And this is talking about in Israel, which is, when I was there, sort of had the same feel. Uh, homosexuality in the streets is not only accepted, it is endorsed by government, which I know to be true as well. Mm-hmm. Persecution of Christian is just the way it is. Try being a Christian and getting a job there. Can't be done. Not even as the lowest street sweeper. Israel has the very deepest spiritual trouble imaginable because they rejected the truth and so can only receive lies. The Mossad is one of the most wicked organizations in the world with their own CIA and NSA competing with them for that title. Which I agree. KGB's up there too. and KGB, the GRU. Oh, yeah. MI6. Uh, they, bad, yeah. they have become like the things they hate. Because there is no moderating force of the precious Holy Spirit. Only a tiny remnant will survive these coming years. And I, and I agree that they will, but it will be tiny. I prayed that for Israel according to Scripture, but I do not condone the terrible things that they are doing anymore. Mm-hmm. That I condone such behavior here in the U.S. Our loyalty is to a heavenly kingdom, and I always try to remember that the new Jerusalem will be coming down from heaven. Thank God. Mm-hmm. That's a brave timely, email for her to send. Timely email. Sorry, I'm so late reading it. Yeah. Um, this is from Bill. Uh, let me. Uh, boy, let me see if I can get through this. I hate to read more Adam Allen Boss, but we still get Allen Boss emails from that show. We had about Iowa. Hate, love. Yeah. What? Question mark. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he says. Uh, he says, I've been listening to all the shows regularly since the beginning of my Christian walk and consider you all family. I'm, um, I'm very familiar with Chris White. It was during his My Rant to the Truth Movement video that the Holy Spirit smashed into my soul, and I realized in that instant that I was wrong my whole life. Wow. So give one for Chris White. He's got so many, uh, I think we better just take them. I don't know. Yeah. I think I may, 
Maybe I am just hypersensitive to things, or as Chris White would say, in discernment overdrive. I wandered aimlessly for so many years, and a part of me, even though I know the truth, is still afraid of getting led astray. Lifelong Christians that I know when it comes to, uh, to say the Twilight books, Harry Potter, Reiki, for example, I'm saying just be careful with that, and they shrug it off as harmless without a second thought. Um, he mentions his son here. He says uh, uh, he goes to a Christian school that is down on Boy Scouts and the universalistic teaching, yet there is a magic treehouse book in the library that my son loves. I just had this conversation with my son tonight. I don't know what to shelter him in an escapist Christian bubble. I don't want to do that. I want him to know how to encounter things and see them for what they are, but at the same time struggle with where to draw the line as a parent without making God as the great policeman in the sky waiting to pounce on us if we enjoy something, but to rather put it in a way that says we are supposed to stay away from these things in order to enjoy life to the fullest. That's a tough job. I'm not a parent, so I can't imagine how hard that must be to not be Mr. Wet Blanket. He says, where do you draw the line between reading Magic Treehouse Children's Book and reading Crowley? It's a good, mm. good point. Um, I just watch TV all day. I don't know. <laughs> well, he says, thanks for your time, Dr. Future, and keep up the good work. You and Tom are a great example of following. I always look forward to your shows. Um, uh, he said, uh, let me just say something a little earlier he had to say about the, about the show. Uh, I think I, I got out of order here. Just bear with me a minute. Um Excuse me. This this was a long one here, so I forgot. Uh, here's what he originally had to say here. Um, he says, I, he, he, Adam Ellenbosch show, he says, I probably slayed that spelling a lot, but laugh out loud. I just listened to some email comments on the Fishers of Men guy show. That's Ellenbosch. I wanted to email you after listening to it, but didn't and forgot about it. Here are my thoughts on it. I saw it when I loaded in iTunes. I was excited as I had heard him interviewed on Out There Radio Disinformation Podcast. They used to be an objective, truth-seeker type show, but now they endorse stuff like Fishers and Men. He says, I went into your interview with him knowing where you stand on the topic, but certain parts of his worldview can be quite alluring. I actually found myself going from knowing where you stand to second-guessing at a certain points. Hmm. I would not say to not interview people with a worldview that differs from ours, nor would I say that you should rake them over the coals. In hindsight, I would say that you handled it in a very loving, eloquent manner and are an excellent example of how to engage culture rather than run from it. You can't evangelize by living in a Christian bubble. He actually said, if I remember correctly, that it was one of his more enjoyable interviews and he wouldn't mind doing it again. It's all about planting seeds, and you can't do that by hiding from culture or being offensive to the unsaved. You know, most Christians don't agree with this and that, particularly most Christian shows. Yeah, you know, one of the most interesting things, a, a good friend of... Uh, certainly of mine and somebody you know as well. Uh, we were sitting, I was sitting at his house at one in the morning and yeah. we were talking about things and he made the statement, you know, he's, he's, uh, upper management in a very successful company mm-hmm. and he said, um, uh, he, he made the statement, he said, um, the last thing I want to do is work around a bunch of Christians because mm-hmm. I don't, I don't need to live in a fortress. <laughs> and right. I thought, wow. Right. That, score one for you because right. you know, right? You know, you seem to be getting all the points tonight. Well, and you know, in the Christian media, they don't like to talk to anybody stretches them or might look bad on them if like they're endorsing mm-hmm. them or something like yeah. that. And I guess that's what's good when you talk to the remnant, you know. 
uh, he says, uh, he says, what an awesome testimony he would have, uh, you know, if he would repent. Convert. Yeah. yeah. He says, I'll play down a future quake. But I would suggest <laughs> as a broadcaster that during an intriguing show like that, you make it more clear often where you stand aside from the interview. Like a clear disclaimer between episodes and sum it up at the end. To reassure your listeners more than anything. I thought the same thing with the Serpent Seed Lady interview. Let me say this up front. I, I don't embrace ayahuasca Jesus, okay? So I, wait, all of our listeners know, if you listen to that show, I'm making it clear. I, I don't embrace that. Yeah. Okay. He's, that said, keep up the good work and keep engaging the culture and keep being awesome. As for the format, I, um, okay, he says you can read this on the air. Um, this was my response uh, to him on this. Um, I have thanked him for his insightful comments. I said, sorry if I had you worrying about my position regarding ayahuasca for a while. I hope you will come to see that I am blatantly anti-sorcery. Sorry if I did not make it clear at the beginning of each show regarding the position concerning the guest. I don't like to come in too hard and come across like we're trying to exploit the guest as a gotcha. I just want them to tell their story accurately and that they, that, that I can get them to discuss the key facets that you, the listener, need to hear to know how to form a biblical opinion on the topic in an informed manner. That's my goal every mm-hmm. interview. I tend not to preach at them, although I did suggest to him that he may be demon-possessed, which uh. in most cases he's considered pretty strong, because I want him to trust my motives legitimately and my desire that he would embrace Christ. Thank you for your constructive thoughts. Mm. So that was Bill sharing with us. Mm-hmm. And... Um, what do we got here? Let what me, else we got? Jeremy. Um, Jeremy says, uh, he says, uh, hey, I discovered y'all on the internet about six months or so ago. I live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, so of course you're not on our local radio. I spent the time listening We're to all... not on anybody's local yeah. radio. <laughs> I spent the time listening to all of your archives. Wow. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, in fact, I got an email from Jeremy not too long ago. He says, I'm now currently caught up to the present. I enjoy the banter. Can you imagine? That's like 500 hours of listening. Well, you know, when I, I felt first like got... like 5 million. When I first got saved, yeah. uh, right after I got... Well, right after I got baptized, I had a European tour that got canceled. I sat yeah. on the floor of the little place that I lived, yeah. and I listened to Chuck Missler and some other Bible teachers like 18 hours a day. I get up, put the headphones wow. on, and listen to them. You are a thoroughly converted person. I hope so. To want to listen to Bible studies that long. I mean, really. People thought no other I was weird, man. Yeah, why do you want to care about that old like, dusty I, you book? Know, and you know how long I did that? I did that for like a month. Really? Yeah. Now you only spend 17 hours, right? Oh, it's much, 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 <laughs> much, much, much less. Yeah. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. He says, uh, um, I enjoy the banter and the dry humor along with the inside jokes about Merv and so forth. I am a Christian that loves the complete Word of God, not just the parts that are yelled at me on Sunday morning from a denominational pulpit. With that in mind, it has led me across subjects that really require one to do some extracurricular studies about the esoteric, archaeology, astronomy, etc., to truly get the gist of what the Bible is talking about sometimes. But that's good. You're going to be interdisciplinary. For instance, the whole Genesis 6 issue on the Nephilim and so forth. I was on some site that was talking about one of these subjects when I ran across your radio show's name and decided to check you out. So the Nephilim were our helpers mm-hmm. up to this. Yep. He says, I do, I, I do appreciate when you, 
when you've read current events and how it relates to Bible prophecy and believe it is a great feature of your show. Mm-hmm. I also love when y'all do interviews with guests because you have a unique interview style and humor that can help the guests feel at ease to divulge what it is they're working on. So in my biased opinion, he says uh, he'd rather have three quarters of the show being interview guests and one current event, one quarter current events. Mm. Well, he only has the exact opposite, but at least mm. they're both. Sorry, out. man. Uh, he says I'm from Texas, so I use the phrase "y'all." I use "y'all" too. I picked it up in Texas, I believe. So anyway, yeah. uh, um, since we're way behind, can I read one more caller today? Okay. Do you mind that? No, hit it. This is Laura. Uh, Laura emails. And um, she says, uh, man, I don't mean another Ellen Boss one here. We'll we'll get through these pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. She says, I don't understand the controversy around the Adam Ellen Boss show. She says, I thought most of your audience was made up of strong and informed Christians. I thought it seemed obviously where you were going with the interview. Churches can bring in yoga and Reiki and change the hymns to rock songs and a whole host of New Age thoughts and practices and no one bats an eye. But Future Quake interviews a shaman and everyone worries it may influence a new Christian. That's a good point. You know? Because they have all that other stuff in other churches. Mm-hmm. He says, I appreciated the show and it was very informative, the basis he was coming from. So I worry about raising my kids in this evil world and I want to know what is out there to tempt them away from the truth. That's mm-hmm. all for now. Feel free to use any of this in your show. That's Laura. That city. Thanks, Laura. So we're going to call it for that and we're getting through this stuff. And before we say our final goodbyes, I want to ask Merv to come in and tell our listeners how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay. I hope I wasn't too rambling on my half of things. Are you kidding? Apologize, listeners. I, I took up like 40 minutes. Well, it was great. It was great. And 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 we've got some fascinating interviews coming up. Mm-hmm. By the way, uh, if you've noticed a method to our madness, we try to do an interview so it'll be the first one of every month will mm-hmm. be an interview show. And coming up, coming up, uh, uh, if, if I don't bore you too much with the first one, coming up will be sort of an extended look at uh, uh, several different false flag and okay. clandestine regime change topics uh, on the second Tuesday of the month. Okay. If that's right. cool. If you're I, cool with I that. I think so. Yo. I think so. Snap. We're going to have a series of some interviews coming up. and mm-hmm. Who knows what the Lord's going to take us. The world's changing so fast we can't keep up with it. I do know one thing. We're going to I Disneyland. Spe- I spend a good part of the week and completely all day from the time I get up until we record this at nighttime on Tuesdays trying to get stories and get to about 10% of them. Uh, I, I know you're probably getting you too. Yeah. much of them too. We not, may not pick the ones that every Futurian likes or cares about. But we do care about the show, and um, we appreciate and love all y'all out there. And any final words for our listeners or for them to heed for the week ahead? Lord's coming. Amen, brother. Amen. And love as many people into the kingdom as you can, even people you don't understand. 
They may be different than you, different mm-hmm. different religion, different ethnic background, different political part, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Love them into the kingdom uh, via the gospel and saving faith of Jesus Christ. How about that? Sounds awesome. Okay. Love all of you all. Um, we will be back in one week. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake.